Welcome to CMO Confidential, the podcast that takes you inside the drama, decisions, and choices that go with being the head of marketing. Hosted by five-time CMO, Mike Linton. Welcome marketers, advertisers, and those who love them to Chief Marketing Officer Confidential. CMO Confidential is a program that takes you inside the drama, the decisions and the politics that go with being the head of marketing at any company in what is one of the most scrutinized jobs in the executive suite. I'm Mike Linton, the former Chief Marketing Officer of Best Buy, eBay, Farmers Insurance, and Ancestry.com, here today with my guest, Jeff Sieverts. Today's topic, what's wrong with interviewing, hiring, and compensation, and what to do about it? Now, Jeff was the Chief Marketing Officer of Alta, Best Buy Europe, and FTD, as well as the General Manager of Geek Squad. He is the co-founder of Risk at the University of Chicago with his partner, Steve Levitt of Freakonomics fame, and is also the author of the Deadly Memos books. Full disclosure, Jeff and I have worked together at Best Buy and have stayed in touch, and he has been on the show several times. So welcome back, Jeff. Thank you, Mike. It's uh, great to be here. Now, Jeff, you've written these pamphlets under the Deadly Memos title, and all of them attack what you might say, and, and this is, if I'm being kind, corporate inefficiency. If I am not being kind or nice, they would be attacking corporate stupidity. And the underlying theme of these are that corporations have processes that are outdated and work against them, and, and they don't really address these processes. They just keep doubling down on them. Tell us your underlying issue here writ large. What is it about corporations that bugs you enough to <laughs> write all these pamphlets? Well, Mike, you know, I've been inside a lot of big companies like you, and, and now I work for a big nonprofit in the form of the University of Chicago, which is a lot more like a company than I ever expected it to be. And it's always just struck me as strange that it's so hard to do the right thing. It's so hard to do what you know would be best for the company, for the team you're working on, for the project you're working on. And there's always something standing in the way that makes that a lot harder than it needs to be. And I started to ask myself, why is this the case? Because these are large companies full of really smart people, all trying to do the right thing. I don't believe that there's, you know, I'm, I'm not one of these guys who thinks that uh, a lot of people are working against the best outcome for the company. I think we're all trying to do our best, but somehow big companies just don't work that well. And so it's something I put a lot of thought into. I wrote a few pieces about it uh, on LinkedIn. I had people tell me, you know, you should, you should maybe try to put this into a book. And uh, and so I, I started scratching a few things out. And then I was talking to, to Levitt, who, who said to me, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Nobody reads books anymore. Don't write a book. Um, this is this is from a guy who sold millions of books, but right. Yeah. <laughs> the guy that wrote Freakonomics hates books. <laughs> yeah. The I next mean, Freakonomics right. books, book is gonna be about why books aren't don't last. So yeah, okay. exactly. But he's right, right? I mean, so few people read, take the time to read books anymore. And business books are especially poisonous or or difficult, rather, because just because you know, there are three or 400 pages full of stories that could all be put into something much more compact. So I came up with this idea of a pamphlet, which is essentially a small book. You know, today we think of a pamphlet as like that thing on gingivitis you get when you're at the dentist, a little, you know, bifold. That's not exactly what I think, but okay. 
<laughs> in the olden days, uh, like Thomas Paine's Common Sense was a pamphlet. You know, a pamphlet used to be a small book. And yeah. so I wanted to revive this idea of I'm going to write something, uh, a series of things that you can read in less than an hour. And they'll give you some ideas for how you could stop sleepwalking inside of a large company. It's almost like a Don Quixote-like effort to change corporations with pamphlets like Thomas Paine. So why why even write them at all? I mean, how do you even know this is going to make a difference? And we're going to drill down into these what what you think is one of the most egregious areas of pain in corporations, the entire personnel structure. So what do, you, what do you hope to accomplish here? Well, I'm not doing it for financial reward. That's for sure, Mike. I mean, I think I could make more money selling mega hats in Harvard Yard than I than I will ever make writing these pamphlets. I mean, it's not it's not something you do because it's a road to riches. I, I just felt like there might be a chance to introduce into the wider conversation some ideas about how we could do things differently. Because I think so many of us just accept that this is the way big companies are or, or big organizations of any kind. But we, we beat our head against the wall, wish it were different, but we don't really try to make it different because we throw up our hands and think this is the way it is, this is the way it's always been. This is the way it has to be. And I, I just don't accept that. If I if I could get some people to read it and try some things, that would be enough for me. So let's go into one of your favorite things to dislike. The uh, performance review, compensation, and team building you would maintain are completely victims of history and their own worst enemies. Tell us why, and then we're going to break this down, starting with the recruiting process and go forward. Okay. You want to talk about recruiting or you want to talk about... No, I want I want you to talk about the whole HR thing here. If I read your pamphlets, which I have, they're all, and I have autographed pamphlets. So the whole HR system is broken. Well, let's start with performance management, right? Which comes here. So how do we get the right signals to our people? How do we tell people who are doing really well that they're doing really well? And how do we tell people who are struggling that uh, it's not working out? We usually use the performance review, right? I mean, every every organization has one of these. They all look generally the same. They're all a one or two page form with these objective metrics that HR encourages us to use. And as we're going through them, I think we all know whether we're on one side of the table or the other that it's that it's not really doing what it's supposed to do. So start. Let's just even start with the idea of can I really capture somebody's performance? in five or six metrics, objective and measurable metrics, can I really capture how this person contributed to the team or the cause this year? And I, and I think, for example, what if you tried to capture in five or six metrics your mother's impact on your life um, or even your mother's impact on you in third grade? Like, that would be absurd, right? It would be absurd that you could somehow capture the essence of that in these silly five or six metrics that we assign scores to. So that premise right away is silly. Second, these things never account for luck. They never account for good luck or bad luck. You, know, you write these metrics, you, you sit down at the end of the year, you look at them. Never in the conversation does anyone admit that if you had a good year, there was some amount of luck that played into that, either in things totally outside of your control or things that are barely in your control. Well, I think about how luck comes into reviews, Evan, uh, done a bunch and also done a bunch on boards is good luck is always discounted by the receiver and yes. bad luck is always heightened by the receiver. <laughs> completely right. Yep, completely right. 
And this, this goes all the way up to CEOs and their boards. The CEO, when they come on, they always in the first three to six months are piling on all the examples of how horribly broken the company is to set themselves up for a great comparison, uh, you know, six months down the line with the board. It's, it's a natural human thing to do for sure. But that is a big part of what I object to in, in these things as well. And then there's the fact that these metrics, which, which are always put on some kind of pedestal by the process and by the HR group, like, oh, you know, you don't understand these are objective and they're measurable. So they must be right. They can always be very easily manipulated. You know, so, so you end up rewarding the people who are manipulators of the metrics rather than the people who are really doing great things. Oh, so we'll move on from the performance views because we're going to have to get to what's a better answer. But one of the things is the massive argument about setting the metrics in the beginning of the year or the beginning of the period is what really happens. Totally. Everyone's having this argument of this profit, where, you know, and then you have the manipulation. So let's agree, sometimes metrics are really hard, um, though they might be, some people would argue, they're the best of available. You can go wherever you want in this, because I know you also have feelings on compensation, team building, and recruiting. Tell us where you want to go next in this discussion and how we do it. Let's let I, I'll just give you a couple ideas for how I think things should change in the performance management side. And then let's talk about recruiting, which I think is is very important and something that that almost everyone cares about. So I think, you know, I, I've got a number of things I suggest that we try in the pamphlets. I won't go through them all, but there's at least two things I suggest that drive people crazy. One is I think performance review should be optional in that if an employee doesn't want to do a performance review, they shouldn't have to do one. Now, a manager should always have to do one if the employee wants it. So it shouldn't be optional in that way. But I think uh, there are a lot of people who don't want to review, either because they're not interested in getting better or they are not sure they can even get better. So why, why spend organizational resources on trying to take someone through a review that they don't want to be part of? A review is a chance for a person to really reflect on where they are and have a quality conversation with a manager about how they could be better. And there are a lot of people who aren't ready to do that. So if they're not ready to do it, why go through these motions? You don't have to have a review to, to assess how well somebody's doing in an organization. You can do that offline. The second thing I always say is decouple reviews from compensation. Like pull those things apart. Because what has to happen in a review is we have to have an honest conversation. And if compensation's involved, it's not going to be honest, right? If it if I'm sitting down with you and I'm like, oh boy, I got to tell Mike that he's really struggling on a couple of these fronts. And if he doesn't get his house in order, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a problem. And, and that's hard enough to do. We as human beings don't want to do that. But if we now throw compensation in the mix and I'm thinking, well, if I give Mike a two, he's not going to get his bonus this year. Right. And then he's not going to be able to afford he's it. Got, he's, got, he's got a kid in college. He yeah. just told me he bought a boat. And I'm going to somehow deny him his bonus. Like those, those things mean that we almost never have truly honest conversations in performance reviews. Those are two of my ideas. And I've got several more on my pamphlets about how we should change. But let's go, let's go to the, the organization needs the performance, the performance review from the organization perspective is serving not just people development, but also it is taking what is almost always, and I agree with you on comp, a ridiculous thing where I'll say, Jeff, you're a three, so you get a 3% comp. If you were a two, you'd get a 1% comp, which in many cases is this big. But it also is the one thing that I'm going to say a lot of weak leaders use to push people out. How do you solve this problem 
of, and maybe this is a team building discussion, of actually changing the team out fast enough. Like if you were an NFL team, you would immediately change people out or a major league baseball team. You would change weak performers out. That doesn't happen very much in business. And also the timelines and the understanding of performance are really hard as well. How do you how do you use what the performance review is doing secondarily for the company? How do you fix that? Well, listen, I, I think that's as easy as sitting down as a leadership team and talking about all the people on the team that we're reviewing the performance of and essentially ranking them, force ranking them. That's what we would do. And performance reviews get in the way of that because they have this veneer objective data around them. Oh, well, Mike was a 3.8, whereas Jeff was only a 3.4. So clearly Mike is better than Jeff. By a lot. I mean, we know that for sure already, but yeah, we got it. But that, you know, that's absurd, right? If if we really had to make tough calls about who are we going to promote, who are we going to put on the path to promotion, who are we going to nudge out of the organization? Because it's just not a good fit. We would just sit down and have a conversation about that as a leadership team. We would spend an entire afternoon on a whiteboard and we would rank our people out and we would figure it out. That's it. And, and we would use as inputs our collective experiences of dealing with those folks in our organization. And that would be far more accurate than looking at some stupid numbers in a performance review where you've independently scored your people, I've independently scored my people, person C has done their own score as well, and we somehow think those numbers are going to be related. Well, I agree with this, and though solving it is, is challenging because, look, if you are a, an, a pro sports team, you only have so many roster slots, and that right. makes, there's a massive forcing function. Here you don't, and also you have, when you combine different functions, you have different scores. Then if you are a hard scorer, sometimes your people get penalized. So so I think there's a lot broken here, but fixing it is is a bear because you have to fix it all at once. Yeah. If you're a big company, you have to fix it all at once. And that is super hard because good scores, if I'm scoring, if everyone gets an A or a B in my team, or they're three or above, I'm not giving anybody a below number. And I get that through. I don't eat any penalty. That's right. And so there's massive incentives here to actually pad the system. The other thing that happens is if I'm cutting people like a pro team and I, I have kept my headcount flat, when the peanut butter headcount cut comes, I get penalized for being a hard grader. How, yeah. how should I handle this in a company where the system is broken? Yeah. Well, you're right, Mike. I, I think... Uh, you're right in the sense that the system is all interrelated. And as such, it requires a very strong leader to come in and say, I'm going to do this differently. Yeah. I think if you're not the leader, the, the most you can do is do some experiments that illustrate for people the absurdity and the limitations of what we're doing now. But you need the CEO of a company or the general manager of a company to swoop in and say, I'm not going to do this the way we used to do it. We're going to turn this to marketing in a, in a, in a little bit because I think I would love some I would love for you to give some tips just to the marketing function, but let's talk about recruiting. You also think yeah. recruiting is broken? Yeah, yeah, for sure. How, how do we recruit? We depend on two things, uh, two vehicles for recruiting: the resume and the interview. And I think they're both critically flawed. Okay, so on a resume, a resume has got two problems with it. One, it's full of lies. And second, <laughs> it assumes that all we are as human beings and as potential parts of a team are the sum of our experiences, our work experiences, right? And, and I point out the absurdity of that in my second pamphlet, the yellow one, where I compare 
I say, okay, let's assess, let's create the resume for Abraham Lincoln versus the resume for Richard Nixon. And if you look at these guys point by point on a resume, it Nixon is 10 times the candidate that Lincoln is because far better experience, far richer experience, far better education, far better jobs before he had this job. And we would look at that and we would say, I'm not even going to interview Abraham Lincoln. Yet Abraham Lincoln was the best president we've ever had. And Richard Nixon was one of the worst. And why is that? It's because being a great president is a lot more than what is on your resume. It's about your integrity. It's your ability to cross the aisle. It's about your ability to put the country before you. But the interview is supposed to suss this out, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's say yeah. I get in here and they're interviewing and they're interviewing me with, and also, I mean, I'm interviewing them along with our producer, Jeff Carlton. Like, why doesn't the interview process work? Well, first of all, because we're really bad at detecting lies. We're really bad at it. We all think we're good at it, but we're really bad at it. There's a lot of psychological research that shows that that's the case. We, we are no better than a coin flip determining if somebody says something true or not, and we and we smell it out. So that's that's problem number one. Uh, problem number two, we tend to like people like ourselves. So what really happens in an interview is you're interviewing me and you say, gosh, Jeff, I didn't know you were on the swim team. You know, I was on the swim team too. And then you spend the next half hour talking about swimming. And then when the interview is over, you say, oh, I really like that Jeff guy. He was really, he was really sharp. But what you're really saying subconsciously, is you felt a connection to that person. And you felt a connection to them because they felt something like you. And that's not necessarily what you need on a team. Um, may have nothing to do with what you put on a team. And finally, what, what kinds of people do well in interviews? Relaxed people, right? People who are relaxed, people who are comfortable. What kinds of people are comfortable? I think there's two kinds of people. One, the kinds of people who are probably overly confident, maybe even arrogant. Or two, people who don't want the job that badly. Those are the kinds of people who really knock the ball out of the park in an interview. People who really want this job are nervous and tight. Uh, and people who have any amount of humility, <laughs> any amount of like self-reflection. You well, know, how did we get all these jobs we got, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let you put those, uh, connect those dots, Mike. But really, I mean, I, I think interviews without a lot of careful engineering end up being a very problematic way of finding the best people. What should we do to fix that? Like, and let's flip this. What we're going to turn this over to the marketers now, and you know, CMOs and agencies. Give me an example of how I might interview and recruit better in the marketing space. All right. So to me, this all starts with something that HR teams seem to spend almost no time doing, which is figuring out what kinds of people flourish in our company doing our, our jobs. What characterizes those people? Let's look at the people we have. Let's figure out who's really excelling here. And then let's determine what characteristics do those people share. Now, sometimes it's going to vary by function, right? In marketing, the kinds of people who thrive as creatives are going to be very different than the kinds of people who are account managers or the kinds of people who are strategic planners. So there's going to be different flavors of vanilla here. I'm going to have my French vanilla, who's the creatives, and I'm going to have my, my homemade vanilla that's going to be my account managers. But there's also going to be a common DNA across the kinds of people who really do well in this organization. And we could spend a lot of time that we don't spend today thinking about what those characteristics are, documenting them, 
and building a recruiting process that's designed to find those characteristics in people. Not the fact that they worked for Campbell Methuen. I don't care if they work for Campbell Methuen. Like, how do they, you know, do they have integrity? Are they creative? Are they curious? Are they resilient? These are the kinds of things that really matter in the job. Those are the kinds of things you need to take the time to define and then build a process to, stu- to suss out. Now, in that process, to me, almost always involves having people do something for you, do a task that somehow mimics what they would be doing on the job. So if I'm hiring a creative, I'm going to have them do a creative task for me. Uh, if I'm hiring an account manager, I'm going to so- have them do a task that has them assuaging the, the client's uh, concerns. I try before you buy and some case studies. You know, we had a pretty good team at, at Best Buy and like, I think eight of those people went on to be CMOs. We didn't really do this, but it seems like we ended up figuring it out, maybe. What what happened there? Like, like what would you advise people to do in the space? If you can't get this all done, what should you do right now to adopt this? I'm going to get better at recruiting. If your HR department can't do all of this, what should you do as CMO or the director of you know performance marketing? What What should you do? Well, I, I back to this what I just said. I would sit down as a leadership team and I would say, let's spend an afternoon defining what characterizes our very best people, and then let's think about what kinds of exercises we could have potential candidates do that would reveal to us how good they were at those things or what how how much integrity they had, how much curiosity they had. Now, those tasks can sometimes take the form of recruiting questions or interview questions as well. I mean, it's hard to see a future where the interview goes away. Right. I think you could have interviews that are a lot more pointed and a lot more strategic than they are today. You could concentrate your interviews on discerning one or two things about somebody, and you could ask a series of questions about that. You could have more than one interviewer in the room so that you aren't being swayed by Oh yeah, Mike, he was on the swim swim team. That's why I like him. And you could get to a place where you better understand whether folks are really meeting that profile of people who, who thrive. One of the things I've also seen work a lot is dinners with people like where the discussion can go longer, deeper, and not be so focused where you get a feel for the folks. I, I, I want to flip this over to... One of the things that you have called out is CMOs and marketers not being pragmatic enough, not making the hard calls, hiding, I think you call it hiding behind the system. What should they do to change that? Well, a lot of my criticism, I think, I mean, I have a lot of criticisms for CMOs about how they approach the task of marketing. But on these topics, I don't have any special criticism for CMOs. I have I have criticism for leaders. And I think leaders Uh, of any kind, are not accepting their responsibility to change an organization for a better. They are accepting the way the system works. And they are thinking that, uh, you know, it isn't worth the effort. But it's absurd when you think about it. I want to think about this sports metaphor you brought up, Mike. I was just giving a talk at a financial services company about, about these pamphlets. And I used the sports metaphor of an NBA team, 1996 Bulls, I had to go back to 1996 because that was the last time I paid attention to the NBA, I think. But I compared the Bulls to my lowly Minnesota Timberwolves of 1996. 
The Bulls won 72 games. The Timberwolves won 26. We could talk a lot about the strategy and, and the nuances of the coaching, but the reality is that the Bulls won 72 games because they had three Hall of Fame players, and my Minnesota Timberwolves had one who was in the first year of his career. That's Kevin Garnett, right? That's Kevin Garnett. So there, it's so easy in sports to see the reality that the team with the best players generally wins. Yet somehow in business, we do not obsess about making sure we have the very best players on our team the way a sports general manager would. I agree with this. One of the things that happens in a lot of performance reviews is you because you hired them and because they're yours, they are by definition amazing <laughs> players. They're amazing yeah. players and they work really hard and they're amazing. So I hear you. So what you're saying here, if I can shorthand it, because I have two more questions I want to get in before we, we finish is try and stay as objective as possible about your team. Your job for them and for the company is not to make them feel like they're amazing. Mm -hmm. It's to really understand how good they really are in the grand scheme of the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that is very hard to do, particularly as you get emotionally close to your team. So let's two last questions. Do you have a funny story or experience that drove a specific pamphlet? That you can share on the air. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it's as funny as I'd like it to be, but I was on the compensation committee when I was at Best Buy. It wasn't the board compensation committee. It was the executive compensation committee. I think you might have actually nominated be, me to be on it, Mike. And that allowed me to see the data around performance reviews for 100,000 employees at the time. Now, this is a long time ago, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not revealing anything out of school here because I'm sure things have changed tremendously since then. But- we had a five-point system. I don't know if you remember that, Mike. We had I one to five. I remember it. Yes. <laughs> and I looked at the data, and out of 100,000 people in the organization, not a single person had a five overall, and not a single person had a one. So right away, I'm like, well, wait a second. Why do we even have a five-point system if we're not even using two of the five points? Well, in all comp, you hack off the top and the bottom, and then right. it's the middle. Because yeah. no one is that extreme. I'm going to a seven-point system, and then I'm going to cut out the one and the seven, and then I really right. have a five-point right. So that told me right away, okay, there's something wrong with the way we view this, because why wouldn't we have some fives, right? We don't have some fives because everybody looks at the thing and goes, well, oh, you know, anybody can be better, right? Anybody, like everybody can improve. So I don't want to give Mike a five, because then he'll stop trying to improve. I point the absurdity of this out in my red pamphlet where I start the whole pamphlet with uh, a performance review for Prince uh, at the end of the year, in the greatest year of his career, you know, he's got Purple Rain coming out, the movie and the album. He sold 10 million albums. He's had three number one hits and he gets like a three on his performance review. Uh, and, and as you read the review, you're just thinking, yeah, I've heard every one of these cliches in every one of my reviews. And so, so big deal. Who cares? Right. But you care because as an organization, you need your fives to know that they're fives. You're like you need your top 10% of people to know they're amazing because they you want them to have that very clear signal so that they'll stick around. You know, that this is a place. I look, I'm with you. This is super hard. And the other thing is everyone, some people think they have a lot of fives and some people think they have none. And standardization across multiple functions is a bear. Hey, since we're almost at the end, last question, Jeff, what's one piece of practical advice you'd give our listeners 
that we haven't talked about yet? Well, I, I, I'm sorry. I think we have talked about this. I know we have, but I'll, I'll come back to it. Think about your teams like a sports team. Why are you stopping? Why are you letting yourself off the hook of the task of making sure you have the very best team you can possibly have? Why is that not your continuous obsession? Do you not know, certainly you know, that everything that your team produces is a function of how great your people are? And if you have people on your team who are just not that engaged or not that good, why are they there? Now, this used to be more popular back in the old days of Jack Welch and GE, and there used to be this emphasis on you got to continuously call organizations. And then at some point that became passe. And now it's probably even radioactive because we spend a lot of time making sure nobody's feelings are hurt anymore anywhere in corporate America. But I would say to anyone as a manager, what is more cruel than letting somebody waste their life doing a job they're not very good at? If you're not telling someone that they're struggling, and they probably already know they're struggling, but if you're not, know. If you're not making it clear to them so that they have the opportunity to either get better at this job or to go find something that's a better fit with what they are good at, then you are helping them waste their lives. And that's a form of cruelty. I agree with this. I Look, I think your goal should be to have them have the best major league career they can have, but you have to be really honest about how they can play. So I think a great way to end it. Thank you, Jeff. And thanks everyone for listening to CMO Confidential. Look for our upcoming shows, which include a venture capitalist talks about artificial intelligence, a media maven discusses the marketplace, and a top executive search perspective on marketing from Spencer Stewart. Hey, all you marketers, stay safe out there. Thank you, Jeff. This is Mike Linton signing off for CMO Confidential. Today's episode of CMO Confidential is brought to you by CMOcoaches.com. Are you a current or aspiring chief marketing officer looking to take your career to the next level? You should work with a CMO coach. CMO coaches are former CMOs who are nationally certified coaches. So whether you want to improve your leadership skills, develop your team, or drive better business results, we have the experience and expertise to help you succeed. To learn more, visit us at cmocoaches.com. Are you tired of the same old productivity hacks? Have you read the top 20 books on effectiveness and yet your workdays and email inbox still causing anxiety, burnout, and even depression? Ready to learn the latest in brain-based modalities, techniques, and technologies to optimize your success and well-being? Welcome to the Focus to Evolve podcast, where we'll illuminate your path to spacious productivity and balanced thriving. Each week, we dive into deeply insightful and immediately impactful methods to help you become highly effective while promoting health, profitability, and well-being. Say goodbye to the trance of busyness and hello to your highest potential. It's time to discover a new way of accelerating your mission, growth, and purpose. Join us on the Focus to Evolve podcast and get ready to live your most joyful, productive, and fulfilling life. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called 
Can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing Business Bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.